Hello and welcome back to Wit Glass Unfiltered. I'm your host, Courtney Huntington, and this is episode 45. Thank you for taking time out of your day to spend it with me here on Wit Glass Unfiltered. Today we're going to be talking about education. Um, I've got uh, some interesting new tidbits of education to discuss with you today. Uh, And the focus is going to be about the things that every student needs to learn before graduating high school. Before I get there, though, I'm going to talk about some headlines. And, of course, I'm going to talk to you about coffee. I'm sitting here today enjoying a fresh cup of of espresso. I've got a double shot here. And today what I'm enjoying is the Trader Joe's Ethiopian that I've been telling you about. And I wanted to mention to you that having had both the Ethiopian recently and the, um, uh-oh, uh, I apologize. I'm suddenly drawing a blank on the other one. It'll come to me. Uh, Bolivian. That's it, Bolivian. After having the two and enjoying both of them immensely, my wife and I have both decided that we like them both immensely. They're different. They are, uh, you know, one is a little lighter, a little bit softer. The other is a little darker, a little richer. Um, Interestingly, though, I think that the darker one is actually a little smoother in this case. Uh, but we, we really enjoy them both. And, of course, um, both of these beverages have been made with the Eura Impressa C60, which we are still absolutely loving. I mean, we literally use it every single day, and we literally use it at least four times a day because between the two of us, between my wife and myself, we each have at least two coffee beverages a day, whether it's um, two four and a half ounce cups of coffee or a cup of coffee and a shot of espresso or something like that. We're each having at least two a day. Sometimes it might be three a day, but it depends on the day. Lately, I've been drinking a fair amount more than my wife has. She tends to stick to two, maybe three a day, um, whereas I tend not to worry that much as long as I'm not drinking it too late in the day. Because uh, if I drink it too late in the day, the caffeine keeps me awake. But I probably should adopt my wife's pattern because... Uh, my body doesn't actually like coffee that much, particularly if I have a lot of it and I have it for an extended period of time. So I probably ought to cut back. Um, really, I probably ought to cut back below what my wife is drinking. Um, body tend, uh, I mean, her body tends to react better to coffee than my body does. Um, it's not that I'm allergic to it. It's not that it gives me significant problems, but um, I just tend to not feel quite as good physically if I have a lot of coffee for an extended period of time. So it's probably time 
for me to cut back again, which means that I may or may not be drinking a cup of coffee in the near future on wit glass. I might be drinking some other beverage, um, but we'll see. We'll see. Right now, I'm enjoying it, but we use our Eura a lot. That's my point. My point is that we use our Eura. We love our Eura, uh, and there is very little for us in our coffee drinking habits and in our coffee drinking tastes about the Eura for us to criticize because it really is great. Now, if we had a model that hooked up directly to a waterline, that would certainly be an improvement. It would be great to have the Eura hooked up to a waterline so that we don't have to fill the, the water tank. Because we have to fill that water tank typically every day, sometimes twice a day, but th- that's rare. That's only on the days when we're either drinking a lot of coffee or perhaps we have guests um, that, we f- that we make coffee for. And, and on that note, we, we make not just the coffee for ourselves every day, but usually, almost every day, not quite, but almost every day, we're making a cup or two of coffee for somebody else. So when I say that we're using our Eura a lot, we really are because we don't just use it for ourselves. Um, but replacing or refilling the water tank twice a day really only happens either when we're having, uh, when, when we've we're drinking a lot of coffee ourselves or having guests that we're giving coffee to in addition to ourselves. Or if maybe the tank is is fairly low at the start of the day and so we have to refill it almost right away and then we end up you know, having to refill it before making the last cup of the day or something like that. Um, but if we could get the machine or a version of the machine that is hooked up directly to a water, water line. That would be one really cool thing. But considering the fact that typically every coffee maker we've had, in fact, no, I got to rephrase that. Typically every coffee maker we've had. No, every coffee maker that we have had, you have had to add water. Whether it's the old-fashioned American drip coffee where you fill up six or eight or 10 or 12 cups to make a pot of coffee. And you, you take your pot of coffee, you fill it to the appropriate line, you pour the water into the back of the tank, and then you make your coffee. Okay, that's, that's a very traditional American coffee maker. So whether it's that or the Keurig, which has a tank that you have to fill, whether it's a Keurig 1.0 or a Keurig 2.0, And so now here we have the Eura and we have to fill a tank. It's not really any different. It's not really any less convenient than any of those others. So uh, there are people who have coffee machines that are hooked up directly to water lines. Um, They tend to be coffee shops. Coffee shops tend to have their machines hooked up to, um, to water lines. Ordinary people in their homes do not tend to have that. So the Eura Impressa C60 that has to, to have the water tank refilled just like pretty much every other regular coffee maker is not that big a deal. It's not that 
big an inconvenience. Uh, it's certainly not any more of an inconvenience than typical. However, that doesn't mean it wouldn't be nice to have it hooked up to a water line. And on that note, I wanted to mention another coffee maker that we came across. It was not a Yura Impressa C60, but my wife and I happened to be at a hardware store yesterday, and it was one of the big box stores. Well, I'll go ahead and tell you. It was Home Depot. We were there picking up a couple little things, and we thought while we're there, we would look at refrigerators. And the only reason is that um, we don't particularly care for the refrigerator that we have now. It's too shallow, and it, it just it's hard for things to fit right without falling over and stuff like that. So we're not really planning to get a refrigerator anytime soon. Um, but, you know, it, it's nice to go ahead and look and you kind of get an idea of the price range you're looking at and what the available features are in the current models of refrigerator. But this refrigerator works fine. So we'll keep using it uh, for the foreseeable future. But, you know, maybe in the back of our minds, if we have a windfall uh, of, of income or something like that, you know, maybe we would replace the one we've got. So we decided to look at these refrigerators and some of them are really cool. They've got amazing features. And one of them, I think it was a GE, has a built-in Keurig. When I say a built-in Keurig, I mean a Keurig. It is a Keurig brand. It is branded with the Keurig name and it has the little thing that you take off the front of the refrigerator, you put your coffee pod into it, and then you put it back in the refrigerator, push the button, and bam, you're making yourself a cup of coffee right there from your refrigerator. Now, if that is not a coffee maker that is plugged into a water line, I don't know what is. And I saw that and I thought, oh, that would be so cool. Now, perhaps I've told you before in an earlier episode that we don't keep the Keurig in the kitchen on the counter now that we have the Yura Impressa C60 because my wife doesn't want to take up all that counter space with two coffee-making machines. And I don't blame her. I, I don't like to take up counter space for anything. I don't even like having the Yura Impressa C60 on the counter. I would love to have nothing on the counter. Well, that might be a little bit of hyperbole. I would love to have more counter space. That's really all I'm saying. So I'd love to have as much of the counter available as possible. But at the same time, it'd be pretty inconvenient to have to pull the coffee maker out of the cabinet every day. Uh, so I don't mind having a coffee maker on the counter. I don't really mind it at all. Um, and, but I certainly understand why my wife doesn't want to have two coffee machines on the counter. So the Keurig is sitting in the other room, and she has been such a dear about this because I kept saying, couldn't we, you know, put the Keurig here? Couldn't we put it here? Couldn't we put it here? At first, she wanted to keep it in the attic, and it was literally in a box in the attic, and 
Then I thought for a moment, wait a second, did we ever take out that filter? The filter that was wet before we put it in the box, and I started thinking about mold and mildew and this and that. I thought, I better check on that. So I went and I checked on it, and sure enough, we'd left the filter in it, and so I thought, well, I'll take the filter out, and then I thought, but you know, I've been craving just an ordinary cup of coffee. Couldn't we find a place for it? And so I tried here, and, and you know, I said, <laughs> I had her walk into the room, and I didn't, I didn't show her anything. I just said, just, uh, I, could you come look at something? And I didn't even tell her what it was, and I wasn't even standing anywhere near it. And she walked into the room, and she, you know, it wasn't like it was immediately obvious, like sitting in the middle of the room. It was off to the side in this nice little spot, and she said, um, no. <laughs> she noticed it immediately. Um, and, and so after, after trying a few things and after having the Keurig down at the beach where we had a regular cup of coffee, she agreed that it was kind of nice to just have a regular cup of coffee sometimes. And so I think that sort of uh, sold her on the idea a little bit. And so she has since found a place where we could keep it, except that I just remembered that then we moved the piece of furniture that they were on. So now I'm actually looking in the other room, and there they are, sitting on the floor. Because uh, I'm actually recording this podcast in my kitchen. And that's where I record it, because it just makes the most sense. Uh, so uh, I, I'm looking in the other room and there's the Keurig sitting on the floor. And, um, so, but she has been sweet about it and we'll see what happens now with it. But if we had a refrigerator with a built in Keurig, then that would completely solve the dilemma. I'm not saying that's the one that we're going to get if we get one, but it's kind of cool. All right. Enough coffee talk for today. We're already 15 minutes in to today's episode, and I haven't even gotten to the headlines yet, much less actually talk about education. Um, But I'm sipping on my cup of coffee. I'm going to start talking about a couple headlines, and then we're going to get to education. Really, I could just call this the headline episode because talking about education uh, was the, I mean, today's episode, the idea of talking about education in today's episode was prompted by a headline. Um, So it could be just a headline episode. Maybe it will be when it's all said and done. But what I really want to talk about is the headline about education. But I want that to be the the big climactic thing. So I don't want to talk about it before I talk about other headlines, right? That doesn't make any sense. So let's talk about a couple other headlines. Um, One thing, quickly, just a quick headline thing. Uh, Have you seen all of these handshake things between Putin and Trump? I'll put some links in the show notes. This stuff is hilarious. It's absolutely hilarious to me 
how <laughs> news media types are focusing on Trump's handshakes. I mean, yes, Trump has what you might call an aggressive handshake style. I, I would say maybe more assertive um, handshake style. I mean, he's not really going in there. But yeah, it's a very strong handshake. And it's a take charge kind of handshake. But it's hilarious how much people have been reading into the handshakes, analyzing the psychology of the handshake, this and that. And then he goes in and when he shakes Putin's hand, he kind of touches the guy on the arm, you know, the forearm, the way some people do when they shake hands. And because he did that, people are freaking out because it's clear evidence of collusion, which is absurd. I'm not going to say any more about it. You know how absurd it is. I don't need to talk any more about it. But as long as we're on the subject of Putin and Trump, I want to draw your attention to an article. I'll link it in the show notes. I was very impressed by this article. Um, it was on Fortune, which I, I don't particularly trust as an objective source for political news. I tend to find that their political news is is rather biased, and, and so I, I just don't care for it. But um, this article was by a fellow named, and I'm going to pronounce his name the way I think it probably um, would be pronounced. But I don't I don't know for sure if this is how you actually pronounce it. Um, I'm going to say it's Christian Nitoyu. And I'll include the spelling and a link in the show notes. Uh, handshakes are meaningless when it comes to the U.S.-Russia relations. Let me read it again because I think I misread it. Handshakes are meaningless when it comes to U.S.-Russia relations. That's the title of the article. It's by Christian Nitoyu. Uh, I was quite impressed with how objective it is. Um, I, I actually tweeted about it, and when I tweeted, I said... It was a refreshingly objective take on the current status of, um, of U.S.-Russia relations. So uh, very worth reading. Um, and his conclusion is that Putin will soon recognize that Trump cannot guarantee Russia its desired perks of a great power. Trump will also find that unlike him, Putin is a person who prefers to act strongly rather than to talk shop. That gives you a little bit of an idea of his bias. I think that there is a slight amount of bias, but um, it is refreshingly objective in my opinion. Uh, so quite... Uh, quite worth reading. I, I think it's very much worth your time. Um, okay, so that's all I want to say about Putin and Trump right now. The next headline that I want to talk about is this, is a headline about the KKK. There was a protest in Charlottesville uh, by the KKK protesting, um, protesting the removal of a monument to Robert E. Lee. And while I completely agree with the protesters about the removal of the Robert E. Lee Memorial, because I believe that Robert E. Lee was one of the finest men 
that this nation has ever produced. I am so bothered by the fact that the KKK is protesting it. I would so much rather somebody else be protesting the removal of the monument because when the KKK protests the monument, all it does is prove to those who want to remove it that they're right for wanting to remove it. Um, But that's not even what I want to point out about the KKK. What I want to point out about the KKK is that they are absolutely tiny. Uh, the article that um, that I was reading, I forget if I only read one, uh, but it, it's an NPR article. And they say, there are about 3,000 active Klan members and unaffiliated individuals who identify with Klan ideology, according to a June report from the Anti-Defamation League. The ADL says 42 Klan groups are currently active in 33 states, though most groups have fewer than 25 members. The report adds that many Klan groups have recently joined forces with other white supremacists, including neo-Nazis. Folks, Klan groups are so minuscule that they're almost not even worth um, reporting about. I mean, at this little rally that was held with the KKK in Charlottesville, they estimate that there were about 30 to 50 Klan members. 30 to 50 KKK members out there protesting, and about 1,000 people showed up to protest, the protesters. The KKK is such a minuscule and insignificant group in the United States that I think the mayor of Charlottesville had it right because he asked residents to avoid the rally. And I'm I'm reading now from this NPR article and to not take the bait to deny the KKK the confrontation and celebrity they desire. I think he's right. Let them do their stupid little rally. Because by showing up and sending out a thousand to, pr- to protest this protest, which only had 30 to 50 people at it, you're almost giving them credence by doing so. I think it'd be better just to ignore them. Okay. The, the point there, the, the overall point is simply... The KKK is tiny. And all these people who talk about them as if they are, um, you know, so dangerous, so terrible, so, oh, oh, they're such a, a terrorist group. Who have they terrorized? They haven't terrorized anyone for ages. We won. We won. Even if you include all the white supremacist and neo-Nazi groups in the United States, they are such a tiny, tiny fraction of the United States population. Uh, I don't have the figures right here in front of me. I'll try to remember to look them up for the show notes. But uh, I want to say that 
the KKK, I mean, I'm sorry, not the KKK, but the whole uh, white supremacist category, which would include the KKK, is not even 1% of the United States population. I, I think that it's not even close to 1%, but I don't remember. The numbers are tiny. That's the main thing. So we don't need to worry about these white supremacist groups. I mean, frankly, the white supremacist groups have done very little in the way of, of mayhem of any kind in, in recent months and years. There, there is just, uh, I mean, they, they are such a minuscule thing. So forget about it. Forget about them. They're, they're not worth our time and consideration. Seriously. If you have friends or neighbors who espouse the principle that white people are inherently superior to, to dark-skinned people, then you deal with them individually. You talk to them. You communicate to them how bad that ideology is. Don't worry about them about these white supremacists out there somewhere and how dangerous they might be. Because, frankly, there aren't enough of them to make it worth our time. And I've already spent too much time talking about them here now on this episode. Okay, next headline, and it's still about the idea of racism. And, and this, one, this one really irks me because I hate it when people change definitions or misuse definitions to make a political point, particularly if that political point is an accusation against someone else for for breaking a rule that is based on a false definition of a word. And so here it is. This is an article from the Institute for Humane Studies And it's an article that is based, it's the um, uh, transcript of a podcast interview. Uh, The host, the name of the host is Russ Roberts, and his guest is a fellow by the name of Michael Munger of Duke University. Um, And apparently the, the podcast is called Econ Talk, and Michael Munger's been a guest 30 times. And on the episode, he talks about um, the definition of racism. And he says, and I'm quoting, I think generally racism is a combination of bigotry and institutionally privileged position. So any person can be a bigot. Racism requires that sense of racial revulsion that you feel is combined with an ability to impose that institutionally. Emphasis Michael Mungers. He continues, so sometimes you'll hear a question, can a black person be racist in the United States? And by this definition, not very easily. It's the dominant people who control institutions or who make choices about other people's access. And he's interrupted by the host, Russ Roberts, who says, rules of the game. And Michael Munger responds, yeah, so the way we defined it in this paper was that racism became a substitute justification for slavery. And the reason was the original justification for slavery, which was the Roman one 
of wasn't good enough. And so Southerners cast about and found basically an alternative, which was the Greek justification for slavery. And let me just say very briefly what those two are. And I'm not going to go through that whole thing, um, but he says, well, that didn't work in the American South because they wanted to maintain slaves to be able to identify slaves and to have a justification that would allow them to enslave the children, which the old Roman justification would never have allowed. You are not going to be a slave if you are born to a slave because you didn't lose in battle. You would have been free. So the Southerners needed a different way. So they were looking for the Aristotelian notion of slavery, which is that slaves are people who are either morally inferior or lack the judgment to make independent choices. They are like children or like horses. That means that you actually have a positive, good justification for enslaving them, etc. He goes on and on, and I think I've already gone too far. Um, the main point of it, I'm, I'm not trying to, uh, to get into the whole slavery question primarily today, um, I, I'm glad that American slavery is, is gone. Um, but the idea that racism can only be maintained by the dominant group is absolutely terrible. Plus, it's never consistently applied. Okay, so first of all, let me talk about how it's never consistently applied. It's never consistently applied because it's never applied to groups in Africa who are um, bigoted towards white people living in Africa. Okay, Those folks, those dark-skinned folks in Africa are never called racist when they, who have institutional power in Africa, mistreat whites. They're never called racist. Okay, so it's, it's not consistently applied globally by the people who defend this. But worse than that, they have so narrowly defined racism that the only people who are capable of it are those who have power. And that is a terrible definition. It's terrible partly because that is not historically how the term was used. But it's also terrible because the term racist itself is a flawed term because the real problem is with hatred, which may be based on the color of someone's skin. So if you want to, if you want to say that somebody is racist, what you're really saying is that they have racially based hatred, which is wrong. Hatred that is purely based on the on the skin color, which is what we tend to mean by race today, uh, and that's a subject for another time, is wrong. It's wrong to hate somebody simply because of the color of their skin. And it's wrong to mistreat them for that reason also. But the problem is not the skin color hatred when it comes to the mistreatment. The problem is the mistreatment itself. But when you begin to say that racism is possible only by those who are in power, who have particular power to impose their bigotry 
then you create a situation in which you have a double standard. Because you can have skin color-based hatred from the non-power group against the power group and it be excused. All right. I spent my entire time talking about this and I want to stop there today. I think there's more to say about it, but I'll say it another time. Thank you so much for listening. Spread the word. I look forward to being with you again soon.